Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten speaking to you from Ottawa, Canada. This morning we are going to um, enter in to a conversation uh, regarding the Torah portion known as Mishpatim. It begins in Exodus 21 and continues through the middle of Exodus 24. Last week, for those who may have joined us or for those who, uh, as a reminder, we encountered the Israelites at Mount Sinai and uh, learned of the revelation uh, known in Hebrew as the Aseret Brot, in English as the Ten Commandments. This week, our Torah portion takes a rather different uh, task and a different journey. Let me offer you an overview of the parasha before I introduce my guest. Following the revelation at Sinai last week in uh, the Torah portion known as Yitro, God legislates a series of laws for the people of Israel. These include the laws of the indentured servant, penalties for murder, kidnapping, assault, and theft, civil laws pertaining to redress of damages, the granting of loans and the responsibilities of what is known as the four guardians, the rules governing the conduct of justice by courts of law. Also included are laws warning against mistreatment of foreigners, the observance of the seasonal festivals and the agricultural gifts that are brought to the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. We also find the prohibition about cooking meat with milk, although in the Torah it says thou shalt not boil a kid in its mother's milk, um, which is very specific. We read of the mitzvah of prayer, and together, all together, the parasha of Mishpatim contains, according to rabbinic tradition, 53 mitzvot, 23 uh, positive commandments, and 30 uh, negative commandments, prohibitions. God promises at the conclusion of this week's Torah portion to bring the people of Israel to the Holy Land and warns them against assuming pagan ways of its current inhabitants. The people of Israel, in response to all of the proclamations, announce, we will do and we will hear, as it is stated in Hebrew all that God commands us, leaving Aaron and Hur in charge of the Israelite camp, Moses ascends Mount Sinai and remains there 40 days and 40 nights to receive the Torah from God. This is a Torah portion that calls out for some commentary, that calls out to be interpreted, and with me this morning is a friend of our show, uh, one of the uh, most articulate spokespeople in our community about uh, Rabbi Norman Cohn. Rabbi Cohn uh, served as the founding rabbi and now Rabbi Emeritus of Congregation Beth Shalom in Minnesota during his tenure as senior rabbi. Beth Shalom grew from 34 charter members beginning in 1981 to well over 800 members in December of 2015, when he became Rabbi Emeritus. 
Prior to his arrival in the Minneapolis area, he served at Rockdale Temple in Cincinnati, the oldest Jewish congregation west of the Alleghenies, and there teaching at HUC and other colleges in the Cincinnati area. He has continued to serve on college faculties in the Twin Cities area, including the College of St. Catherine, McAllister College, the United Theological Seminary, and St. Olaf College in Northfield, Minnesota. He is the annual fall semester rabbi-in-residence at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul. He has also been the rabbinic scholar each year for over two decades at Mary Mother of the Church in Burnsville. And he returns every year to his alma mater, Holy Cross College, to serve as chaplain and advisor to the students and faculty. There is no doubt that uh, Rabbi Cohn is, of his generation, one of the most articulate interpreters of Torah. He has authored numerous magazines and numerous articles, and the book of Jewish biblical personages in the New Testament. In the first year of retirement, he wrote the book entitled Sacred Architecture, referring to the building of his congregation, Beth Shalom. It is with great pleasure that I uh, welcome again Rabbi Norman Cohn to Jewish Fakes and Jewish Facts. Well, thank you, Rabbi Garden. It's a pleasure always to be with you um, and uh, always exciting to, uh, to share together the Torah and study Torah together. I, I learned so much from you. I love what you do with your program. And it's no doubt, it's no surprise to me or any of our colleagues that appear on your show that it has grown in audience and in scope. And um, I know uh, you often share the remarks that you get from your listeners. And it's always great to know what an impact you have on, in Canada and, you know, throughout, not just in your that's just in your uh, small domain where you where you live, but 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 all around it. Well, um, now that we have um, mutually appreciated each other's wisdom and skills, um, yours is well deserved. Um, I want to begin by um, asking you about this interesting juxtaposition. Um, last week in the Torah portion called Yitro, we experienced the uh, revelation, God speaking to the Israelites. And whether our listeners have read the text in Exodus, or they've seen the movie The Ten Commandments, or other uh, visual representations, it is a powerful expression of God's presence in the world. No doubt about that. And this week, um, simply one Torah portion later, just a few chapters, we seem to um, focus on the great minutia of everyday life. And I'm wondering how you understand that transition and why the two of them need to be so uh, close to each other. Um, in fact, it's not until the end of this Torah portion that Moses goes all the way to Mount Sinai and goes up Mount Sinai as opposed to beginning the Torah portion. So can you share with our listeners your thought on this? I love, I love how you describe that moment at Sinai because um, for Jews, that is the great moment in our history, standing at Mount Sinai, 
receiving God's instructions. And um, I always use that throughout my rabbinet with the youngsters in religious school. And the first day of religious school, we'd have an assembly and I'd explain all the people who were there who were new because we always had new kids every year. And I asked the rest of the kids to do what was done to them the year before. Find one of the new kids in religious school, go up to them and say, I saw you at Mount Sinai. And this is an expression I use with all of my kids and my congregants. I saw you at Mount Sinai. It's, it's that powerful moment that unites the Jewish people. And what unites us is the giving of Torah. And um, the fact that it's the awesomeness and the glory of God is what draws us there. But the transition that we get to the minutiae of everyday life is very natural in Judaism because um, the Torah and the mitzvahs and all the work that goes on in the world isn't something that God does. And it's not something that the angels do either. There's a powerful midrash that when God was about to give the Torah to the people of Israel, and of course, Israel to spread it throughout the world to be a light to the nations, the angels objected. They said, why should you give the Torah? To people, give it to us. We're up here with you, God. We're holy like you, and there's nothing holier than the Torah. And God said, silly angels, you don't need the Torah. You're up here in heaven. The people, they need the Torah. They need the instructions because if we're going to have holiness in the world, it's going to happen there through the acts of human beings. And in fact, what we're going to see in this Torah portion is really a fulfillment of a great Jewish teaching that says mitzvah goreret mitzvah, avera goreret avera, which, as you know, Rabbi, means one mitzvah, one good deed leads to another. Avera, one violation of the rules of the world leads to another violation. And I believe that's, that's about moral inertia. That's about once we get to do good things, it's going to lead to other good things, like paying it forward. We know this expression. And if we develop the habit of doing bad things, it's going to become easier for us to do make the bad choice the next time around. So what it's really saying is we're God's workers. We're the ones who, uh, with our hands and our feet, bring holiness into the world because that's what God has asked us to do. And God gave us the Torah, which contains all these minutiae. And as you point, pointed out, so many of these rules we read about in this Torah portion are no longer really relevant. They're, they're from an antiquated society, but the principles of the rules are still important to us. And that's our job today, I think, you and I, to, to talk about some of those. It's interesting because what you've identified for our listeners is that Sinai is truly a unique singular episode. It's God's presence transforming the children of Jacob into a nation. And that can't be repeated. It's singular. It's sui generis. But the next Torah portion, the one we're going to chat about today, is about how we repeat our commitment to bring holiness into the world. And while God made um, this um, singular event, we are challenged by this week's Torah portion to really um, use everyday life 
as a vehicle for holiness. That's a really interesting way to phrase this all. Now, in the midst of all of these laws, as I said in the introduction, 20 positive commandments, 33 negative commandments, there is a one commandment, one statement that has been uh, a significant, has had a significant impact on Western culture. And that is the statement, um, an eye for an eye and a tooth to a tooth, for a tooth. And I know that um, you will remind the listeners that even the New Testament um, saw something important in this. And so of all the laws that exist here, I want to begin with us trying to understand how we've moved from the Torah and its proclamation to the rabbinic understanding and the implementation of that commandment and how it's impacted in many ways on our uh, the early Christians and then the relationship between Christians and Jews. So let's start with an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. What is that all about? Well, it's one of the most misunderstood and misappropriated texts from the Bible. And uh, we'll talk about it in just a second. But um, even in the biblical context, we have, to, we have to remember the biblical context, they didn't live just all by themselves. There were other peoples around them. And there was a group of people who had something called the Code of Hammurabi. And uh, the Babylonians in the Code of Hammurabi basically understood that um, there was a lex talionis, that they called it, this eye for eye, tooth for tooth. We believe that the Israelites, our ancestors, came along and what they were really saying, if you read the Hebrew carefully, it's um, at most an eye for an eye, at most a tooth for a tooth, because they recognized, as we do today, that one of the most powerful parts of human nature is the idea of, of uh, retaliating and, and getting even and punishing someone who's hurt us. Um, that's normal. That's human nature. I think what the Torah does is it gives us a tool to be careful about the human nature and understand that if we keep uh, doing that back and forth, we're going to end up with like Hatfields and McCoys all over the place. We're going to end up, as Tevye in Fiddler on the Roof said, um, a world with people who are blind and toothless. And, um, you know, and that's not the goal of this law. The goal of this law is to put a limit on this natural inclination for vengeance. It's to say, whoa, your human nature is powerful. And as you grow, you have to learn how to control that human nature in order to create civilization. So you put a limit on at most an eye for an eye, at most, because the commentators came up with a great um, example. They said, what happens if someone who um, who has one eye um, knocks out the eye of his fellow human being and that guy now has lost his eye and he only has one eye left. So how do you punish the one-eyed person? Do you take their only remaining eye away? And the answer was, well, that wouldn't be fair. That wouldn't be equal justice because he made the other person half blind, but to take away his remaining eye would make him totally blind. And then it would be not a fair kind of a thing. So they recognized their problems in executing these kinds of laws. And they tried to put stipulations in. It sounds like they were interested 
uh, not in vengeance, but in equivalency. Injustice. Injustice. That's right. Injustice. Um, And that in the rabbinic world, for our listeners, this is the post-temple period um, of the first century of the Common Era um, through the fifth century of the Common Era. Um, This was um, the notion of equivalency. Yes. And they wanted to speak about damages, which is part and parcel of our civil society, um, and the notion of equivalency. So how did they do that? Well, Rabbi Garten, you pointed out exactly where we, we should go here, because the rabbinic period was growing and developing at the same time as early Christianity. And you can see in both of those religious traditions, uh, a sensitivity to, to how do you deal with these kinds of things. And in the rabbinic world, which I can speak of uh, more authoritatively than, than in the New Testament world, although I have studied that, the rabbinic world, they went on to say, it's not an eye for an eye, it's the value of an eye for an eye. And then the question was, what do you mean the value of an eye for an eye? Well, if you, if you look over in England today, there's a insurance company called Lloyd's of London. And they insure people's limbs and they insure people's teeth and they insure all kinds of body parts. And how do they put a value on that today? I think that they would go back to what the rabbi said. They said, well, he said, someone loses his arm or he becomes crippled. He can no longer farm and till the earth and provide sustenance for his family. So he said, so a person who makes him crippled has the responsibility you know, not to be crippled, but to pay that person so that his family can be provided for as they would have been provided for had they not crippled this poor guy. So they were seeking 2,000 years ago what we seek today, fairness and justice, and as you say, equivalence. So that was one of the, one of the things they did in, in those days in terms of valuing. In the New Testament, there's a famous quotation And it says, um, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Um, And it says, um, an eye for an eye. You've heard that it was said. Let's put it this way. It was, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. You have also heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, this is a, this is a key, a key, um, idea in interfaith relations. And you can find that in Matthew five. Um, the problem with that text, and we know this takes place in rabbinic literature also, when we quote other texts, we don't always get it exactly right. So, This is the famous turn the other cheek. Judaism doesn't say turn the other cheek. It says make justice and, um, and find a way to make things fair. And, um, the other part though, it says you have also heard that it was said you shall love your enemy and and love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now that you can find nowhere in the Jewish Bible. You can find nowhere in the Old Testament, but because it's linked to a text, the eye for eye, tooth for tooth, which we know we find in this week's Torah portion. Um, we've got a problem because the second part creates this misconception that has led people to think 
that Jews don't care about our enemies, but we do. But we're not told to love our enemies. In other texts in in the Bible, in our Bible, it says in the Hebrew text. In, in the Hebrew text, it says um, when you encounter your enemy's ox or ass wandering, you must take it back to him. When you see the ass of your enemy lying under its burden and would refrain from raising it, you must nevertheless raise it with them. The Torah tells us to be fair and just and giving even to your enemy because it's easy. So it sounds like that the New Testament um, is speak that the Torah is speaking to a society. Right. What are the society what are the laws that allow a society to call itself Mamlechet um, Kohanim a nation of priests, Am Segula, a treasured people. And Matthew is speaking to an individual who may or may not be part of a community. Um, and, and one of the reasons I phrase it that way is, um, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy is obviously not the quotation from the Torah. Um, the, um, Torah says, um, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. Right. And so it has this notion of communal responsibility and separates that, uh, from its, uh, proclamations about nation building and enemies. Enemies are not seen as those who are in your community. They're seen as those who are outside your community. Um, they're not seen necessarily as those who uh, challenge be- your beliefs from within the community, but those who challenge beliefs from or without the community. Well stated. The enemy is the one who's coming to do you harm. And, and Correct. And you can't, if you loved your enemy, it wouldn't be your enemy anymore. And so they're not, they're not asking us to do unreasonable things with what those human natural feelings are, but they're asking us to be careful about what those feelings bring you to do. So you have to still be fair to your enemy. You can't just do the, you know, mount more sin upon more sin, but you're not being asked to do something that's impossible for you to do either. And I think that's, that's a very powerful thing, right? But I, the reason what you're bringing up is so important, Rabbi Garten, is because these kinds of misunderstandings of text lead to what we know in interfaith relations as polemics. And polemics are sort of the hateful arguments that we bring. They're often based on misunderstandings and stereotypes. And we, we Jews do it with some Christians and some Christians do it with some Jews. And it's, it's the thing that, that gets in the way of us finding our common ground and moving forward to make the world a better place, which is really what we were told to do at Mount Sinai. Make, make the world a better place by doing these misses. Oh, well, by, um, and that's why I guess last week when we spoke about, um, when the show presented a conversation about Sinai, we indicated that there were, um, Statements regarding our relationship with our neighbors, Ben Adam Lachavero, and there were statements about uh, Ben Adam Le Hakadosh Baruch Hu. Um, statements between ourselves and the deity, and 
um, within that context, statements about how we live our lives with others. Um, this notion of mishpatim strikes me with all of the different um, rules about um, how do we distinguish ourselves from others. So if in the Hammurabi Code, it speaks about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, the Torah and the rabbis wanted to differentiate between that code of antiquity and the behavior of the Hebrews. If um, there were laws regarding the property and booty that you acquired um, in conquering others, the Torah wanted you to see your care for the ox um, as not simply something to be destroyed because you had conquered somebody else. Um, it's a, it's a, it's another way that Torah has, if I hear you correctly, of challenging us through our everyday behavior to be holy. Oh, that, that's beautifully said. It, and in addition to asking us to be better than others, because it's not an idea of, of that Torah makes us better. It, it makes us people with more responsibility, all of these rules. But I think it means be better than your worst self. That is, be a better self that you know you can be instead of the one that gives into your human nature all the time without considering what you might do to prevent yourself from doing that sin. And I think that that that's a key factor here. And be before we go, there's one little gem I love, and I know I shared it with you earlier. Um, many people ask, well, how did the rabbis get to this idea that it's not an eye for an eye? but a value of an eye for the value of an eye and, and same with a tooth. And what they do is they take the word. It's not when it says an eye for an eye, it says ayin tachat ayin. And the word they use tachat can mean in place of, but it also can mean under. And, and the rabbis pointed out that um, an eye beneath the eye, the word for eye is ayin. The three letters are ayin, yud, nun. Now, in the Hebrew alphabet, the letters that are under them, the ones that follow, are Pei, Kaf, Samech, which scrambled up, spell the word Kesef, which means money or valued things. So they said, instead of an I, Tachat, move down one letter and you'll find Kesef. You can pay and compensate them for their lost labor because that's your responsibility. And if we have any doubt about how that's used, most of your listeners, I'm sure, have seen or might see someday a great film called 2001 by Stanley Kubrick. And in this film, it's all about technology and the dangers of computers, which I think all of us feel today. That's another topic for another time. But in the, in the movie 2001, the big computer that's on board the spaceship is known as HAL, H-A-L. He called HAL. It's a nice, friendly name. But if you want to know how Kubrick got the name Hal, it's the letter Takat, another letter. What's the most famous computer company, at least at the time the movie was made? It was IBM. 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 And if you go under IBM or the three letters above them are H-A-L-I-B-M. So this is a linguistic kind of a thing. You know, uh, Rabbi Cohn, once again, you've helped our listeners understand the depth of rabbinic tradition 
and how Jews read the Torah. I want to thank my guest, Rabbi Norman Cohn, Rabbi Emeritus of Beshalom Congregation, uh, for joining with us and helping explicate our Torah portion, Mishpatim. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. You can hear our broadcast on CHRI 99.1 or as a podcast on chri.ca or on iTunes and soon to be available on YouTube. Shalom and have a good day.